Blake Eastman is a guest like no other we've had. He's a professional poker player and founded School of Cards, the first brick-and-mortar poker school in the country, and is the creator of Beyond Tells, a poker tells training site. He has a graduate degree in psychology and taught psychology at the City University of New York for six years. While he was doing all of that, he also provided consulting services to physicians, practices, and hospitals regarding nonverbal communication and conducts his own large-scale independent research on nonverbal communication. The current pandemic has hamstrung our ability to read nonverbal communication and to convey it. We're either behind a mask or a blurry image on a telehealth visit. So he teaches us what to prioritize with regards to our own nonverbal cues, how to optimize a telehealth visit, the importance of the cadence and volume of our speech, and cues for recognizing understanding. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. Wondering if you're getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spending hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the insurances that they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, request your quotes online. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, apply risk-free. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With discounts for doctors and training and some relaxed requirements during the pandemic, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD. Again, that's PatternLife.com slash partner slash PGD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Blake Eastman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we're start, going to start talking about expressive nonverbal communication. So what doctors really need to focus on in ourselves when we're communicating with our patients, be it behind a mask, behind a mask, and all the PPE regalia, or maybe over telehealth. And, and we'll, we'll break each one down. So if you had to pick one part of the body that we need to really remember to focus on, to make sure that I'm conveying the appropriate nonverbal cues, which would it be? Uh, definitely upper half of the face. So muscles right around the eyes. So the eyes and the muscles around the eyes. So the brow, the left and right of the eyes going to be the most important. And it's going to be most important in a mask wearing COVID-19 sort of approach. Is that the same, you know, when this is all finished, there are some lessons to be learned, but you know, there hopefully will be a point where we're not in masks anymore. Is the answer still the same? I think so. With a lot of communication with doctor in a, in a sort of medical framework, I, I like to think of two things, interest and authority. So a doctor wants to be able to display genuine interest in what a patient's going through to have that level of rapport. And then there also wants to be indications of authority. A lot of authority can be dictated via vocal tones, but the interest, it, it, a lot of it comes from the eyes. Because you know when you walk into a doctor's office, there's that period where it's like, you're on the computer, you're doing what you're doing. And then it's like, all right, Blake, what's going on? And that's that moment where I'm like, are they really listening to me? Are my symptoms being listened to in a way that I feel heard? And a lot of that comes from upper facial movement. And it's sort of like if you had a flat affect while I was saying all these things and you didn't say, hmm, or you didn't have any other follow-ups, it doesn't look that engaged and that interested. Okay. So like, like a furrowed brow, right? So one, I need to make sure I'm looking at my patient. So, so Blake, what brings you here today? Or how are you feeling today? What's going on? Why are you here? Pull my face away from the computer, make eye contact, like furrow my brow. Yeah. I mean, like the, the furrowing of the brows is why it's, it's difficult to sometimes discuss behavior because there's a lot of context that's lost in the discussion. But you want to think of it this way, like head nods, squinting more than furrowing is sort of the indication. So if I said to you, like, listen, my head's really 
my head's really hurting or something like that. And you're, and you're like, all right, can you describe what it's like? And I'm like, all right, well, above my eyebrows, it's really hurting. And then all of a sudden you look at me and you squint and you nod your head like, okay, I know that my message is being heard in that instance. It's sort of uh, understanding that you're listening. Uh, and I've, I've worked with a lot of doctors and sometimes they'll just flat stare at you <laughs> while you're discussing. And it's like, okay, are you getting this or are you not getting this? Right, And you want to have as much of that behavior in alignment with, I'm interested in you, I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I'm right with you during this entire interaction. And the reason why is because when then the advice or the recommendation or the course of treatment comes, it's treated with way more authority because it's like, all right, well, he collected or she collected all the information. And then there's this level of authority as opposed to like, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Where it's like, well, did you even listen to what I was saying? It didn't even seem like it. And this is the same thing in a normal social context. If you were having a conversation with someone at a bar or having a conversation with somebody on the train, it's, it's the same level of thing, but it's just so hyper-focused on interest and authority in a medical framework. So make it look like you're interested and concentrate on the upper half of the face. And in a dynamic way is I think what I'm hearing. Like rather mm -hmm. than like when I said furrow my brow, like that sounds like a fixed expression, right? I'm just furrowing my brow and there it is fixed as if like, like I'm concentrating on you, but squinting, nodding, mm -hmm, like all this is, a, is dynamic and needs to be used in concert. Um, and, and just to be clear to the audience, we're not like pretending that we're listening, we're listening. And if you're listening, you're following. Mm -hmm. But like, if you're listening and you're stone-faced and you're like, I haven't been able to get my Botox recently. So now my face is extra dynamic, but like really, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's really a liability of, of Botox. Oh yeah. Get a definitely. lot of Botox, like the lower half of your face isn't, isn't moving because you're wearing a mask. Now the only thing is the upper half. Now that's not moving, but it needs to be, you know, you, you need to make sure that you're conveying to your audience that you are listening and that you are present. And so these are the, so it needs to be, it needs to be dynamic, but, but what about, in like, let's say it's an inpatient setting or or urgent care in ER where you're not just wearing the mask, right? You're wearing a face shield, you're wearing a gown, you're wearing gloves. At that point, they're, they're, they might even have a tough time seeing your furrowed brow. What can we do in terms of, and I know you hate this term, I know, I apologize, <laughs> body language, right? What, so, what, what can yeah. we do? On that front? Well, I think the first thing that's important is uh, we have this sort of model that we talk about when we're looking at any interaction, behavior context-wise. So what we're constantly doing as humans is we're identifying behavior that exists in a current context and we're determining the reason why. So what happens is when someone's wearing this gigantic shield on their face and their communication is sort of broken, I think it's really important for first to be the acknowledgement of the change in situation. Uh, I, I don't know what hospital group it was. I think it was Columbia. But what they started doing is they started taking pictures of themselves, smiling, and then taping it onto their shirts. Yes, I saw that. And it said like, this is what I really look like. Like that is an example of doing that with a picture, right? It's showing that like, even though I look sort of intimidating right now and my whole behavior is cut off, I am a person... I'm able to communicate with you just like anybody else and sort of letting them know that. You know, it's difficult though because a lot of this stuff is doctors are busy, you know? Like it, you're seeing all these patients, you're moving left and right. It, it's sort of the little things that you need to improve on that have the biggest net effects. Touch can be a very, very, very powerful thing. But the thing that's tricky about touch is you, you got to do it right. If you touch somebody and it's not assertive and warm, it could become awkward and uncomfortable really quickly. So certain doctors and certain people are able to execute this uh, and certain people just aren't. And it's very difficult to, in terms of like prox proxemics and touch to sort of tell people, all right, just touch someone in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. Like it's like a practice effort. I think a and good I think rule would in, be a shoulder yes, inner thigh, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely shoulder. I mean, I've had, I've had opportunities where I remember being, I remember vividly being in a, a dentist's office and they were doing x-rays of my teeth. And I have a weird thing where I was like, I had the x-ray thing in my mouth and it was really hurting. And it was like, you know, I wasn't complaining or anything, but visually I was, I was experiencing some distress. And I remember 
the first woman that helped me, she did it twice and it didn't work. And then like the senior nurse came in and she put her hand on just on my ankle because I was like laying down and she just looked me in the eyes and she goes, we'll get it. And I remember feeling so relieved just immediately after that moment because it was like that sign of compassion and authority. And, and that's sort of what touch does. Uh, definitely, I think that vocal quality is more important. People are going to have to get used to speaking louder. Vocal tonality and loudness is going to be you know, it's an indication of authority as well. And especially when you have like two masks on and it's difficult, we want to sound clear and vibrant. So there, definitely vocal exercises could help with that a, a lot as well. So I'd, I'd crowdsourced some questions on Twitter from some of the med Twitter, Twitter community. And one thing that one of the doctors pointed out was that if your patient has hearing loss, and as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, a lot of my patients have hearing loss. Um, so I'm really glad that, that she pointed this out. If your patient has hearing loss, they might depend more on lip reading that, than they even realize. And now you put a mask over that. So I think it would also be helpful to acknowledge, like, like you said about acknowledging, like, I recognize that all this personal protective equipment can be intimidating and can cut me off from you. And I just want to put that out there and let the, let you know, you know, there is a person in here that wants to take care of you. Acknowledging that you might have some difficulty communicating. And if you do, don't be ashamed to ask me to repeat myself. It's my fault for not being loud enough, not your fault for not understanding me. So I think with the patients that might yeah, have hearing that's loss, so important. It's, it's really going to be important. And so, so you, you're saying, right? Because nonverbal communication, you're saying is not just the way we move our face and the way we move our bodies. It's also vocal tonality. And so do you think it would be helpful to slow the cadence, intentionally slow the cadence of our speech in this situation? Not necessarily. So this is where nonverbal behavior and the concept of body language, it just gets such a bad rap in so many communities because it, it's spoken about at such, such a simple, simplistic level. And like I've worked with doctors that would be described as creepy because of the timing of their facial expressions. Like their smile is just too quick. It doesn't have the morphology of a genuine smile. So you tell a doctor like smile more and they start smiling in a weird way and it has that sort of <laughs> negative effect. Uh, so there, these are just subtle things where we learn them throughout life. We become lazy. And also we don't have cameras on ourselves all the time giving us feedback on what's going on. And like people in a doctor-patient now, that's one of the few social dynamics where it's just extreme authority, right? It's sort of like a judge. Like you go into a doctor's office, the average person is not going to know how to navigate the medical community. The average person doesn't have a ton of doctor friends or anything like that. Like what the doctor says is going to be like gospel in a lot of ways, right? So I think that with this speech adjustment, we call that a speech basically. A speech is a way of communicating that sort of hedges problems with interactions. So if you ever have... So for example, like if let's say the doctor's throat was killing them and they were wearing a mask, you say that. You say, listen, I'm, I'm so sorry. I injured my throat. Blah, blah, blah. I have this mask on for your safety, my safety. If you can't hear me, please, blah, blah, blah. People don't give the actual why or the context for the break in behavior. I remember like a, a doctor came in and he was limping. And I clearly look at his limp and I'm like, you're right, doc. And he said something like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, well, give me the context. <laughs> just be, don't just say, yeah, I'm fine. Don't right? dismiss like, it. Because well, that's, then that's exactly. kind of like dismissive. It is. And, and people don't understand. Like, I mean, the, the main reason that I was, I worked within the medical community is because there is some pretty convincing research that suggests that doctors that don't do these things are suited a much higher rate right? Because that empathy hasn't been connected and people go, it was that doctor's fault because they had a, a miserable experience. Also, we live in a point in society where reviews and just the hub of information of like, you have a really good experience with a doctor. You tell your other friends, listen, I got a guy for you. I got this woman for you. They're perfect. Go see them. Tell them Blake Eastman sent you. You know, like it's that kind of culture and the ROI of a social interaction could be incredible. You could just nail an interaction. I mean, I had a, I had a dermatologist that took so much care of me around seven or eight years ago. Anybody who I speak to in New York City that ever brings up anything, I'm like, go see my guy. 
He'll take care of. And you don't know who's going to be that kind of person and you don't know how that's actually going to happen. A lot of that comes from behavior and how you make the person feel, not just a diagnosis, not just a course of treatment. It's a way more interpersonally powerful dynamic than most people think. And I think a lot of doctors need to reframe their thoughts. Like, I have a lot of respect for the fact that most doctors are trying to provide the highest level of care that they can. But care is twofold, right? It's emotional care. It's making sure that the person's whole, um, heard. And all that stuff is just as powerful if, as not this is the right treatment or this is or you're fine, right? Like, do you know how many times doctors have said to me, like, you're fine and I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little intense, especially when I was younger. I'm like, I don't think I'm fine. Let me go do more research and go see three other doctors until I meet that one doctor. Uh, all right, let me give you an analogy. So when I was... When I was 19 years old, I was in graduate school and I got shingles all over my neck, right? All over my neck. It was bad. It was burning. It really hurt. Oh, yeah. I go to the doctor's I go to the doctor's office. I'm like, I don't know what this is, blah, blah, blah. So the doctor first explained everything to me. And one of the things that I loved is he took out his like giant book of, <laughs> of like- uh, Big book of rashes. Yeah, the big book, exactly. And he pointed to it and he explained to it and he went over the stress with me and he really uh, sort of, you shouldn't be having this at 19 years old. And like, it was like a really cool moment where I'm like, this guy's really looking out, look, hearing from me so, so forth. And then he did something that is unheard of in medicine. And if any of you run private practices, there's automated ways that you could do this. But he reached out like three weeks later. He reached out with a phone call and just said, hey, Blake, I'm just checking in to see if you're okay and if the sort of stress has dissipated, if everything if everything's okay, it's fine. I'm here for you. If not, give me a call back. And I was like, wow, I've never, I've never really, it's never happened before. And it was just like an amazing interaction. And this is the thing. Everybody's doing this. E-commerce retailers are doing this. Restaurants are doing this. Everybody does this, but it's still slower in in medicine. I think a lot oh, yeah. of the- Well, uh, people, people had computers in their homes in the 80s and doctors didn't get a lot of electronic medical yeah. records for, until a couple of years ago. So we're, uh, we're 30 years behind the times in that. So, and, and, and that's an excellent idea for people to do to help build their practices, especially now. So if your practice is slow and you know, you're wondering how to get patients back, what, what uh, Blake was talking about is you need evangelists. You need evangelists. Yeah. You need people that are going to be like, "Oh man, you gotta." And and online, yeah, the online reviews are huge. And another thing, a lot a lot of the place I think that I get my patients are the town blogs. The I'm not really mm, fond of the misogynistic term "mommy mommy mm -hmm. groups" of the Facebook groups. That's a lot in our town that actually has that in its name. But people go on those and they they say, you know, does anyone go a dermatologist? Does anyone know? A dentist? Does mm -hmm. anyone know a carpenter? Does anyone know? And I think I got a lot, get a lot of my patients because any time one of my evangelists, and you only need a couple of them, see that they'll be like, "No, yeah, oh man, you got, you gotta, you gotta see my guy. You gotta go see Doctor Black. You gotta see Doctor Black." So, the, so, so taking these cues and focusing on just a few of these little things that Blake's talking about now are really going to help us. So, if we can pivot for a little and talk about telehealth, because in in telehealth. Right. Well, the focus, it's not as its not as high resolution. You might not be able to see all the facial expressions. So what I've found myself doing is gesticulating like a Muppet, like Kermit the Frog swinging his arms around just so my patients know that there's someone, like there's a human being on the other side of the screen. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recommendations for it? And also with regards to the eye contact. Like, are we looking at the patient? Are we looking at the camera so that the patient, like, it looks like we're looking at them, but then we're not really looking at them? Like, do you have any recommendations for for telehealth? Yeah. Uh, first thing is you should always drag the uh, their face as below your camera as possible, right? So, like, if you're you have sort of like a MacBook, you're gonna take it and put it in the middle of the screen so that you're as close as possible. There's always going to be a disconnect. In so it's on the vertical axis. It might not be on the yeah. horizontal axis, but at least you're on the, the same vertical axis. Yeah, at least you're on the vertical so that it looks like you're not looking off left and right. Also, I think it's important if you're like taking notes or anything, you need to explain that. Like, hey, I'm just, I'm just taking notes. So if I look left and right, that's the reason why I'm looking left and right. Uh, for teledoc stuff, I would say that what you said is correct, but also just an increase in energy specifically related to the loudness and vocal quality of your voice. Voice becomes a lot more important 
in any sort of like Zoom meeting or teledoc scenario. I mean, we've been doing a lot of work on financial presentations and I've seen that vocal tone just creates so much more power. And the reason why is there's sometimes lag, there's all these things, but a lot of these services, how they're built, they prioritize sound over video. So while video may freeze or a little bit look a little bit pixelated, the sound quality is still more important. So like anything that's going to raise your energy or anything that's going to get you to be a little bit more um, effective via voice is probably going to be the best piece of advice for that. But everything else still applies, right? Same thing about the speech, same thing about understanding context. It's just a different medium. You might want to address the medium like, hey, so just so you know, sometimes this gets a little bit weird. If you can't hear me or if it breaks up, just please let me know. That's an indication that they're being heard right then and there. Just saying that like, if there's a problem, not, okay, let's get started. What's wrong with you? And then it's like, hey, uh, what was that? I couldn't hear you. Like, so just by hedging it with that shows that you're more caring and understanding. You seem to be getting back to that same concept over and over. Right, making sure the patient yeah, it's knows just different ways of that doing you're it. present and they're being heard and they're being understood. That's like every answer circles back to that. And I think there's there's an important point there. Yeah, and you should be able to do like put it this way: if you can't do that in your life, you can't do it in a uh, patient doctor format either. So you want to be good, able good to do practice that. it with your <laughs> practice it with yeah, your friends. Exa- it, exactly, like there, and then it becomes just sort of this pattern of behavior that you get used to and that you're able to do it. And, I, and I'm not saying that like, and you, we don't need to fake it. Like you ideally, mo- I, I don't know many doctors, like doctors aren't walking into the room. A lot of this stuff is unintentional, right? They're like processing something. They're working on it. They just forget to do these kind of things. And that's why it has to become more of a pattern of behavior outside your practice. And then it starts to become much easier to apply inside of it. Well, yeah, you know, we're running behind. We're a little stressed. We're thinking about that last patient. Like we might not be totally present. So I think to your point, it's important to be present. So, you know, I think, and we've definitely said this in other episodes with other guests, but like stop outside the room, take a deep breath and get ready for this patient to now be the star of the show. You know, you got to get whatever is in your head out of your head. So you're not faking it. You are um, you are genuinely present, but but still, you know, practice these these little things to to make sure that you do continue to do them in in your in your professional life. There was a question on Twitter that you might not have an answer to, mm-hmm. but one of the one of the physicians asked, "What do you do if a patient becomes tearful in a telehealth visit?" So, you know, typically what we would do is this is where the physical contact becomes important. You know, you offer them a tissue, you put you put a hand on them over telehealth, like we're like stuck. We're, you know, we want to reach in and give the patient a hug or something. Do you have any recommendations Uh, for what we can do? So this is, this is where the dynamic aspect of your ability as a communicator really comes to play, right? So crying is, there is not a uniform way of dealing with that. Just to be clear, different people respond to different energies, different people respond to different approaches And I really believe that the skill set of actively dealing with someone who is crying takes a completely different level of social ability and social skills. I would say for most people at this point, you just want to emphasize as much as possible via vocal tone. Like, I understand this is really hard. I understand what you're going through. I make sure that is actually heard. There's a difference between saying like, I understand that you're crying. Versus like, I really understand that this is a hard time for you. I just want you to let you know that. And there's just such a different in execution. And it's tricky because those of you who are listening to this, I don't really know what your spectrum of communication is. So for example, I'm not kidding. I, I had somebody cry three weeks ago. Uh, a client start tearing on the phone. And my response was, we're not doing that right now. You're not crying. Stop crying. That was my response. Okay. And I'm not sure. It was because... Are you, are you recommending that we say that to our patients? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm you saying know, that... I might say I'm, that to one of my children. Yeah, I'm in a different context, but I'm saying that like for that particular patient and for that particular person that I was dealing with, that's what they needed to hear, yeah. right? And then like three three days later, somebody else cries and it's, listen to me, you, you've got this. There's, you know, and it's a completely different level of compassion, right? 
And it takes a certain level of communication to understand which one of those it is. And I'm not saying you're saying we're stop crying, but <laughs> there are ways of assertively saying like, listen, 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 I know this seems scary, but right now where you're at, you, you have it way better than most. You know, There's a way of reframing it essentially. And different people are going to require different things. Um, so that is a very difficult question actually to answer. Uh, I think it's really dependent on a, a certain person's level of or, or ability to communicate. You'd be surprised what I've seen over the years, like of surprised, the and I think you mean disappointed. Yeah, well, no, no, not not necessarily. I mean, I have seen, I have seen interactions where, you know, doctors are a little bit more cold and direct, and they're not so. They don't have a ton of empathy, but they just have a level of authority and power that the patients respond well to. But then they get that one person that needed that empathy and they're like, I, I, I hate that guy, right? Yeah. So like communication is way more dynamic yeah. than people give it credit for, which is why sort of the empathy style is just, it's going to work way more effectively. But you need to marry empathy with empathy and listening skills and all that with authority. I don't, I don't want a doctor who's going to sit there and go, question, oh, really? Okay, interesting. Okay, interesting. I want interesting, 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 interesting. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. This is what we need to do. Yeah. All right, Blake? This is what we need to look at. We're going to do this test. We're going to do that test. We're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. We're going to see what it is in two weeks. I'll be in contact. Great. I'll talk to you later. I'm like, okay. He listened. She listened. I was heard. And now there's a treatment and course of action. So it's that powerful shift from listen, listen, listen to this is what we're going to do. But if you're not given the cues that they've exactly. been listening you're the whole not, time, you're not going to come away from that thinking, I'm on board with this. Because right, it you, didn't lead up exactly. to the authority. The authority wasn't supplemented with that empathy and that understanding. And I think, and, I think for the, that crying patient, it makes sense, at least you know, from, from a basic level. And I think this could be universal, is just acknowledging it. Like, this is really hard. Like acknowledging that they're, right? Being present, being there, acknowledging what they're going through. I'm sorry, this is really hard, right? Yeah, and acknowledging it. And giving them time, giving them, giving them yeah, time yeah. To, to, to process it. And also connecting them to reality is really important, right? So, you know, as, as non-doctors, we're not looking at illness and disease the same way doctors are looking at. And sometimes a sheer explanation of the reality of our symptoms can help sort of ease that anxiety, right? So we want to listen, but we still want to know. And it could be the other way around too. I mean, you know, sometimes the news isn't always good, right? It's yeah. not, well, it's yeah. hard. And that's, that's what's tough. Then you need a plan, right? Like mm -hmm. let them process. And then this is what's going to happen now, right? Like, like you said, with the authority, this is what we're doing next. We're going to get a scan. We're going to get a biopsy. We're going to like, yeah, there's nothing like a professional. This is any type of professional in and outside of medicine with a plan. We want to know people have plans, if all of a sudden someone's fixing your house, you're like, yeah, I'm going to play around a little bit and see what I can do here. You're like, okay. It's like, all right, step one, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check this. Step two, I'm going to check this. Step three, and I'll let you know and we'll see. Like it just, it's way more effective. Here's an Etch-a-Sketch of what it's going to look like. Ah, I dropped it. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, you don't, want that from yeah, your, yeah. Uh, you don't want that from your contractor. <laughs> um, yeah, so you definitely don't. So let's talk a little bit about receptive nonverbal communication because we've we've really been focusing on expressive, which I think is easier, right? Because you could yeah. you practice it with your friends, you remember to do it in the office, and your you develop what is yours for you. It works for you, right? This level of touch mm -hmm. works for me. This level of touch doesn't. But receptive nonverbal communication, and this is something actually that one of the other uh, physicians on Twitter pointed out is she called it cultural humility. So okay. we're talking about is really, you know, what works for us in the American medical system. I'm sure I have my share of international listeners, but, you know, I think the majority are in America, maybe some in Canada, a couple in Australia. Mm -hmm. But, you know, cultural humility, humility, because if we're trying to interpret someone's cues, nonverbal cues, and they're coming from a different culture, or maybe even a subculture within ours that we're not familiar with, we might be misinterpreting things. So I think the focus really should be on your own expressive nonverbal communication because receptive, and, and you were alluding to this, right? Every doctor is different. Every patient's different. Every situation is different. So it's really hard to just say like, 
Yes, furrow your brow. Yes, squint your eyes. Yes, like, because because it's going to be different. I think it's important to mention the the importance of cultural, it's not cultural competency because you can't. It's cultural humidity, just recognizing what you don't know. However, right, do you have any recommendation, now that being said, now that I've just added that disclaimer, for receptive nonverbal communication? For, for what, you know, what should we be looking for in general? I don't really have many specific questions in this arena. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think that the culture excuse, I'll call it, when it comes to nonverbal behavior is a lot less of a thing than people think it is. Really? And yeah. And, and, and just for some context, so I spent the past three years traveling extensively across the world. So I, I was sort of like this, um, I ran my business remotely and I spent a lot of time in Europe and Asia and Southeast Asia and just was, was bouncing around a lot. And you know, there are fundamental themes of emotional states that are pretty congruent. There's what I think differs from a societal norm standpoint is the willingness to show those themes, right? So, for example, if we talk about like anxiety and we look at anxiety across the spectrum of different cultures, the manifestation of anxiety is the same. It's just certain cultures are not willing to show that anxiety, but there's still subtlety that that anxiety is there is what I'm saying, right? So like some of the cultural norms that are related to her processing behavior, I, I, I honestly feel that in a, I think the biggest concern would be like, I don't know, maybe certain, certain questions are taboo or certain things you shouldn't be asking or like those kind of things. But I think from a, a, a recognition perspective, I can't imagine there being that much of a difference. However, I do know there's a big difference between how we perceive and how we understand authority across spectrum. And that would be important. I think the best people for this... So let's say your practice is moving. The best people that understand cross-cultural norms and the differences and changes are uh, certified translators. Those are the people you speak to. So if you're ever dealing with, I don't know, let's say some sort of weird case where you have to go work in Japan, which is probably the most, Japan is the most fascinating culture, in my opinion, just because it's so different from Northeastern sort of New York style of communication. Let's say I was going to Japan. First thing I would do is talk to a translator. Like tell them because they get it. We have access to them, right? We need them. Yeah. Like I frequently have to put a translator on speakerphone uh, in order to communicate. Well, not that frequently, but but. It's something we have we have easy access to. So I guess enlisting them to make sure that we're picking up on the behavioral cues that we should. Yeah, they're very good. Because I, I've literally have had interactions where I'm like, listen, what do I need to know about like behaviors or any like weird or different things? And they go, oh yeah, let me explain. Like authority, da, 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 da. This happened when I was working with a, a Chinese company. And it's just like completely different the way you demonstrate respect. It's not like a Northeastern style of demonstrating respect. It's a very polite, very- a Firm handshake and a hard a, squeeze, yeah, which is yeah, it's a lot of currently out the window. So I wonder how that's going. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's, but it's just a lot of vocal, like, thank you so much for having me here. Kind of, you know, there are certain norms that exist in different cultures and they can be phenomenal for that. But I don't really think it would, I don't think it would matter. Like, because think about the context. Like, if you're in a practice in New York City and someone's coming to see you that doesn't have the same cultural stuff, like, it's understandable. Like, eye contact, right? If they're from a culture where where you're not supposed to make eye contact with someone in authority. Yeah, like you might. Yeah. That might be. That's a big that's one. What we've been talking about right. That might be interpreted as by by me as disrespectful because they're not making eye contact. But and there I am making an yeah. assumption about them. I guess the the problem with this stuff is is I'm always juggling two things. For example, I'm I'm, under, I'm juggling the theoretical concept of this and then the application. So what am I going to do? Like have a list of the top 50 things in different cultures and then you're going to remember that the one, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those things where I, like of all the things that you are going to work on, understanding cross, cross norm sensitivities from a cultural perspective is probably not the thing unless you're a traveling doctor and moving from thing to, you know, uh, culture to culture or you open up a place in a certain area of Queens and you have a certain demographic that's coming to you. Like that's when it's really going to be important. I, I wouldn't want you to, anybody listening to this to focus on it if it wasn't a direct need basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's 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 an excellent point. There was one more question that I that I wanted to get to about receptive nonverbal communication, at least within the context of of our culture, and that would be recognition, right? You mentioned it, understanding. So an in-person visit where someone has their mouth covered, also telehealth where we might not be able to see them so clearly. So for in-person, what am I looking for to see if the patient really understands what I'm saying versus a lack of understanding? What what cues am I looking for? Mm. This one's trickier. <laughs> okay. So this there one's might not be a, there because, might not be an answer, right? There might be. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is an answer. Different. There, and, there, and that's the thing we find, right? So, like, when it comes to teaching this skill set, we find that the answer is take these interactions, lump them up into five to seven different ways people communicate they're being heard, and expose you to hundreds of samples of video where you get to see those things. Then you go, oh, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I see what, I see the theme here. It's kind of like if I showed you a bunch of videos of someone being awkward, you would quickly understand what an awkward situation looks like. To answer this specific question, I would say that first and foremost, I think it's really important to do follow-ups vocally to see how people respond to that. Like, like literally saying, is that clear? Like, does that make sense? Like, do you understand that? Like being able to say that, I don't think that's done enough. And also that creates the trigger point in which you'll be able to see. Meaning it's very difficult to like actively pay attention and sort of look for these things. You don't want to play a guessing game. So you can have a conversation and then like at the point of when you ask that question, you want to ask that question and then you want to look for some sort of vocal response or you also want to look for some sort of behavioral response. Because a lot of people will say, I think it's also helpful to be like, are you sure once in a while? Because it's kind of like this. If I say, Brad, you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm doing okay. It's like, are you sure you're okay? And they're like, last night was, you know, the kids kept me up. I didn't sleep. And I I think that kind of follow-up can work if there's not some sort of clear overt sign that they understand what is being heard. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if you push that too hard, it could come off as patronizing. And I think to that point, spinning it to your responsibility as the physician to make sure that you've explained it. So like, do you understand? Right, right, right. It's very different from, have I explained that well? Because do you understand me? If they say no, then it makes them feel like there's something wrong with them. But yeah, understand. Am, probably I, a bad am I explaining that well? Like, no, you are not. You are not explaining that well. Now the person doesn't have to feel like there's something wrong with them that they're not understanding you. So I think spinning that question and making sure yeah. to say that in that, in that specific way and then looking for that, those suggestions of understanding. And this is also, it's also tricky just because I feel that there's such sort of an authority style norm that exists in a patient doctor for so many people that even if even if your language is right, people just like listen to the doctor. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of the style that a lot of people will... And then they'll leave the office and they're like, ah, I'm not sure what that was. You know what I'm saying? What just happened? Yeah. Yeah. Like what just yeah, happened? Like, like, they'll just, they'll just like nod their head and be like... By themselves. Yeah. Like, like coming without your spouse to the doctor as a male patient. And then you come home to your wife. What yeah. happened at the doctor's visit? What happened? Yeah. It was fine. Oh, well, Everything's okay. Fine. That's, that's not what happened at all. Oh, no. He said, or she said, everything's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, that's kind of the dynamic that creates that, right? Yeah. And this is another thing that boils boils down to like just understanding what your individual communication styles like, how good you are at perceiving behavior. Put it this way. The better you are at reading behavior and modifying your own behavior the more emotional and social range you have. So the more tricks and more things that you can do. So that's why it's a two-way street. You got to be able to understand and you also got to be able to emote and communicate. Yeah, that's something that when I started working on it, when I started working on like being more present, it started to bother me more when people weren't present with me. Right, like that's something that my wife it. and I yeah. both talk about because we realize that like, like if someone's, I think, you know, before I started working on stuff like this, but like before the podcast, because this is this is a lot of what I like to talk about. You know, if someone was like scrolling through their phone while they were talking to me, I probably wouldn't have minded it as much. But now like, oh man, it just makes my head explode. So like to your point, right? It's that it goes into other parts of your life and you keep practicing it. Then you get better at doing it and you get better at reading it. And you just have to keep 
It needs to be, you have to be mindful of it. You need to be mindful of your own cues, which makes you mindful of other people's cues. And then just get better and better at it. Yeah. It takes active work like anything else, right? Like it takes active work. And I really believe that it's an area that you know, some, some schools are, are teaching this now, but not a lot. Like it's not, it's not a standard approach. I, I know, I think Cornell has a, um, they have like a lab, NYU has a lab, like they're interested in recording doctor interactions and doing all that, but it's, it's not standard. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Like we were talking about before the show, just getting through regulations in order to, like, if you're a doctor who wants to see what they look like when they're talking to patients, if you're part of a big institution, getting permission to record the visits and permission from the patients, running it by the legal department, and what do you do with that file afterwards? And that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be really challenging to, to do all that. And if it's not a genuine patient interaction, like if it's like the actors that they have medical students working with, it's, I don't think it's, it's just not going to be the same. No, but, yeah. but you can definitely, you can definitely tell. Like I can, if I met a doctor with like a low level of upper facial animation or a weird, a weird smile timing or something like that, like that's going to be in there. There's no way they're not doing that in social interactions and then doing it in a uh, yeah. doctor patient interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So there's certain like signs no matter what, uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's something that, needs to be looked at a lot more, especially if, I, th- I just think for across the boards for also think about your patient. You know how good it feels to walk out of a doctor's office They and you're not like thinking about like, should I trust that? Should I not trust that? I don't know. They're kind of weird. Were they not listening? You know, you feel like a sense of resolve. It feels like, okay, there's nothing wrong. Like yeah. when I walked out of the eye doctor and they told me that my eye wasn't damaged and I'll be fine in two days and come back Monday if there's any problems. It was just this amazing relief. Because like, what if I lose my eye? <laughs> you know, this is irrational. It just falls out. That is it going to fall out? Yeah. What if? What if my? I mean, I'm text messaging an eye surgeon. She's like, Blake, you're you're not going to go blind, but there's there's some complications that you should just go. And I'm like, okay, thank you, thank yeah. you for giving me the context on why I should take care of this. Right. So I think that's so 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 important. You know, anxiety and stress. Those are those cause a lot more illness too. <laughs> so you can be a catalyst in reducing that. Absolutely. Let's wrap up with just one point. Like, let's say. You get something in your eye, you've got a rash, you slice your hand cutting an avocado, you're going to the doctor. What's one thing that is important to you as someone who is an expert in nonverbal communication that they exude? So the one big takeaway from today that you're just really hoping that this one doctor does. Aside from, you know, stitching up your hand. I weight the listening and authority piece very, very, very heavily. I'm also a pretty good patient in the sense that like, I will ask questions in a way where I'm not like that annoying, but they'll be like inquisitive and interesting, like just checking about this, but I'm not annoying. I know how to like strike that interesting balance, but I need to think that there is a plan. For me, I, I hate when doctors rush. Uh, can, can I just end with one story about this from my real life? Sure, absolutely. Okay, perfect. So I I had something on my arm. It was like a, a growth, right? Uh, and cancer is really big in my family. Both my grandfathers died from it. And mom, breast cancer, just everywhere. And I had a weird growth on my arm. And I go to my primary doctor and I'm like, hey, uh, I'm just wondering like about my arm. And he looks at it for literally, it must have been less than a second. And he says to me, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And I was like, literally just like that. It's nothing. And I was there for something else, right? And I was like, okay. like." And this was when I was a little bit younger and not as assertive as I am now and didn't understand the medical community or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't work in medicine. So I was like, okay. So I go home. I'm looking at it. I'm on you know, PubMed and I'm on everything. I'm like Googling things. Like, I don't know, this, this kind of meets the A and B of ABCD of skin cancer. Like, I don't know. So I make an appointment with a dermatologist and it's annoying because I have to go through him, right? So I have to get a referral at that time. I didn't have the same kind of healthcare. I don't know, I don't know my father's healthcare. So I get a referral from him. His office approves it. I go to the dermatologist. Dermatologist sits me down. I ask the dermatologist, say, listen, I'm concerned about this thing in my arm. First thing he does is takes his little wheelie chair and moves in closer to me. Second thing, he holds my arm in his hand and he takes out like this little magnifying glass and he looks through the magnifying glass and looks around at every aspect of it. 
then he maybe spends like seven to 10 seconds really looking at it, pushes it, prods it, whatever. Then he pushes back in his chair and he says, okay, and explains to me what it is and what's the, and just really makes me feel absolutely incredible, right? So this, I walked out of that, I'm like, I love it. I don't have skin cancer. I feel amazing. Now this doctor eventually became a friend and somebody that I confide in personally. And I said to him many years later, I was like, listen, you knew in one second that there was nothing wrong with my arm, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, then why do you spend seven to 10 seconds? He's like, I was just being a little bit more thorough. But I was like, you knew in the first second, right? That it was nothing. He's like, yeah, I knew, but I just wanted to be thorough. And I was like, wow, just that extra seven seconds of being thorough and really looking like you care because he actually did care completely changed my concept of this person. I bet and he I've was sent squinting him so too. many clients. Oh, he was squinting. He was looking with this. <laughs> then he explained to me. He explained to me like the ABCDs of thing, but really showed me like what what something that is cancerous looks like versus what's not. He gave me a little bit of education, which made me feel empowered. It made me feel heard. It made me feel empowered. And I and I felt like okay, this is not something that I can that I worry about. Where the other doctor was like, "You're fine." Just yeah. trust me. Same answer. Same answer. Same answer. Same yeah. treatment. Different same delivery. Yeah, different delivery, and it meant it meant all it meant all the difference. And I think that is what is the key takeaway of sort of this podcast or this discussion is being able to actively integrate that style of communication with your patient. Empathy and authority. Yeah, and being heard, empathy and authority. I think good. So we always look at social interactions. We try to sort of break them down into continuums or themes. And I think the big theme for medicine is authority, empathy, and also somewhere about like active listening. Like when those three things come together, you have a very powerful interaction. And I think there's often a lot of authority or sometimes there's not. I've worked with doctors that are not, they don't have enough authority. They're incredible clinicians, but they, they're just not, their tone, the way they deliver stuff. And you're, you're left like, uh, like am, I, am I dying or not? Like, yeah. Which one is yeah, it, don't, don't end each statement with like, it's a question. And also my little hack is, you know, I, you know, I do this, right? So like I, I tell every, every time I go to a doctor, like, also I'd be like, I'll throw out what I do in some sort of weird way. I'm like, oh, you know, I analyze behavior. I work with a lot of doctors. And some of them are like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And they get really involved. And some of them just don't give a shit. <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, that's nice. Put your head on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and I find it interesting and, and sort of the balance between that and that, how people reciprocate. Like, what Come on, doing. at least it's, pretend. It's just fascinating. Pretend. Yeah, at least, at least pretend, right? Like, and it's like, hmm, interesting. You're not interested in how you're communicating. I'm, I'm interested by that. So it's it's cool, but it's it's a whole deep world to rabbit hole, but it definitely makes sense to work on this skill set. I had uh, Scott Dickers on the show a while ago who was the founder of The Onion, like the, the comic magazine, oh, and he wow. teaches people Great. how to be funny. And I said, well, what do you want from your doctor? Because the whole episode was was how to be how to be funny as a doctor, like funny yet appropriate. And he said, don't try and be funny. I'm the funny one. Just laugh at my jokes. That's all I uh -huh. want from you. And I feel like that's that's kind of what you were you were getting at. Like I, I told He's you right. what yeah. I do. Like I gave you an in for an interesting conversation. Like just take it. Take as you're examining me. Just take it. Take it and use it. And I think that's that's important too. Like recognizing that the person that's sitting in front of you has this whole life, and you you lobbed it to them and they could have easily hit a home run by going, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. And it would have been great. And it would have been great. And that's all you needed. It like it's, uh, yeah, there's so many interactions and just bring it into your life and it'll be easier to bring it into your practice, right? So yeah, be practice. more present, be more, you know, there's uh, the, one of the doctors I work with that was really struggling with authority. I had him uh, negotiate something every day for 30 days. So he had to like, he went to, he was, he was a doctor in New York city, he lived in Midtown and he would like go into a deli and the bottle of water would be 150 and he wouldn't have to negotiate it. He'd be like, listen, all I, all I have is a dollar. Like, will you take a dollar? And it, what was fascinating was just to see, and he had like physical anxiety when I, I did the first five with him and it was like physical anxiety. Like he was, his hands were shaking. It was like really afraid of confrontation and, and, and really was just not used to that. It was his comfort zone. And over the course of 30 days, just one every day, he first, he like made like $3,000 in savings. And then he started to really see 
what his authority and what his power look like. So I always recommend things like that, right? You don't want to try this on your patients. Try it in your day-to-day life and you'll see how it can carry into your actual interactions. Maybe maybe not in my marriage. Yeah, no, not my foot. Well, down. Honestly, like your your spouse or your partner, I mean, they are some of the best at being able to tell you what you're doing and what you're not doing. They may not be, they may not be the best at giving feedback because they usually have a lot of meaning attached to that. Like, oh, you just don't listen. Like they have their own story and concept yeah. about you, but they will really know your little weird things. Like, so it's like, what do I do when I'm not listening? They'll tell you exactly, oh, you, you break eye contact more, you start checking the phone a little bit, blah, 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 blah. Like they, they're wonderful resources. So if, mm. if you're really looking at your presence, I, I, would, ha- I would sort of enroll your, uh, your significant other to sort of help you understand what those gaps in your communications are and what your like tells are. What do I do when I'm listening and what do I not do? Yeah. I, that's, I think that's a great point. That's a great yeah, point. But like just how do you know when hear, I'm really listening? You have, to be, you have to be okay hearing that because you're not trying to pick a fight. This is... Uh, oh, no, no. You're trying, to, you're trying to better it'll, yourself. It'll create a lot of cohesion, right? Like who yeah. doesn't want to be around somebody that wants to know those things? Like it, yeah. it's powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to ask in, in my marriage. I don't have to ask. She just, <laughs> she just tells me. <laughs> oh, it works out well. It works out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Well, this, this has been great. Tons of actionable advice that are going to help us turn those uh, one-star Yelp review patients into, into five-star patients. And we'll have a lot more people that are be taking our advice. Because why do all that studying and why uh, work all those hours if people are going to leave the office and go, you know what? I'm I'm not so sure about that. But if they're going to take the and advice because you thing. said it with authority. You just said something I got to bring up. So you said one star and five stars. So I have this big rule that I follow. And it's basically, I don't pay attention to one star and five star reviews because the one star people are crazy and the five star people are often crazy. What's really valuable is the threes and the fours. The threes and the fours will tell you a lot because a lot of them, you'll, you'll read it like, well, the interaction was great, but yeah. boom, 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 But boom, the front boom, desk boom, staff, boom. that's that's a lot uh-huh. of times where those, but like those, yeah. oh God, those four-star reviews, I'm like, couldn't you have just, come on. Like, couldn't you have just given yeah. me the five? We were so close. Yeah, really, yeah, really yeah, I yeah. feel like that's more of a dig than the one, like to your point, right? Because the one star, like a lot of times it's stream of consciousness. The grammar is not great. Like clearly this person was like, on a tirade and just like, you know, slam the keyboard. But and that whole review star, system is Yeah, flawed. I mean, that's a whole, that's like the a whole, whole episode. That's a whole flawed. podcast series yeah. for, for itself. But, but you know, you make, a, you make a good point. You got to look at the twos, threes, and fours. So yeah, those are very helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you, you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's a hugely important episode, especially now that we're all, all behind a mask. And this was great. So thank you very much. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.